All right, well, good morning. Welcome. We are starting a new series this morning. It's good to get in on the front side, right? Like to be in at the ground floor, and that's what you are. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to pull any punches. We're going to test your endurance because we're going to do the book of Acts together. And we're going to flip the calendar several times before we finish it. So we're going we're gonna to spend the better part of the next few months and just about all of the summer looking at the book of Acts. And this was strategic. This is the week after Easter, right? So Christ is alive. He's, he, was, he was executed, but now he's alive. And there's a, there's a very real question of, okay, so now what? Right? So now what? And so we're going to look at the book of Acts, and the book of Acts outlines the movement of the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus is alive. It outlines it through, through place and time in the first century. Those who walked with Jesus, those who knew him and then experienced his resurrection, what did they do? How did they live out the call to be his disciples even after his death, burial, resurrection? And today we're going to start that in Acts chapter 1. We're going to go there in just a few minutes, but um, we've called the series Going Viral. It's so 2014, right? Um, but we've called it Going Viral with the idea that, look, there's a spread that takes place. And culturally, the idea of going viral is a, is a real thing that people, people talk about that, um, that happens. But originally, the word virus, that's not a good word, right? We've sort of, we've sort of stolen it. But the, the original word for viral actually was, uh, it was related to poison, like, like a snake bite. And the idea was that once it bites you, whatever is in that bite it duplicates itself over and over again inside your body until, like, you're dead, right? And so it's the idea of a virus. That's where this, this comes from. Um, and, of course, we use it now today to talk about, take that idea of con constantly duplicating, constantly replicating. And we have, we have a whole industry of, of going viral. We talk about, um, we talk about uh, viral marketing, Right? And viral marketing is the idea that I've got something to sell you, but I can't sell it to you unless I can get your eyes on it. And quite frankly, what's happened over the last decade or so is that it's much cheaper for me to produce something and then to try and push it out to, to you by word of mouth than it is to pay however many millions of dollars for an ad spot on the Super Bowl. Okay, they, That still happens. People still do that. But surprisingly enough, Today, even Super Bowl ads are, are done online first, and then they kind of test market that way and move them over to television for the big game, okay? But this idea of viral marketing, so we're talking about the way that things spread, and, um, and I need you to see something in order for you to, to buy it, okay? I need you to see something in order for you to buy it, which of course brings us to this, right? YouTube. Um, I, I firmly believe this. I fundamentally believe this. That YouTube is the best example that we have. It's the best example that we have of, of viral marketing, but I also believe it's the best example that we have of, of one, just one entity that's changing culture. Our culture is rapidly changing because something like YouTube exists. Now, I know there are others besides YouTube, but YouTube is king, okay? Um, I want to give you a, just a few quick numbers, Okay? YouTube, uh, the first video was uploaded to YouTube on April 23rd, 2005, okay? So it's well over a decade now. 
YouTube has more than 1.3 billion users. 1.3 billion, to put that in context, okay? There are only 1.2 English-speaking people in the world, okay? And of those 1.2 billion, only 300, about 350 million of them speak English as their first language. So 1.3 billion users of YouTube. Every minute, every minute, on average, 300 hours of content are uploaded to YouTube. Every minute, 300 hours. YouTube has nearly 5 billion videos viewed each day. About 5 billion videos viewed. Not surprisingly, this one probably won't shock you, um, YouTube users, about 62% of them are men. So you can do the math, 38% women, okay? And, and, uh, but what we owe most to YouTube is that without YouTube, we probably wouldn't know about the Harlem Shake, right? We can thank YouTube for that. We know about the, if you don't, I'm sorry, but it was out there, 117 million views on just this one, and there were probably a million Harlem Shake videos. We probably wouldn't know Carly Rae Jepsen, right? Or did I say that right? Jepsen? Jepsen, sorry. You know, call me maybe. Anybody? Anywhere? No? All right, okay, all right. And I know that I certainly wouldn't know who A.A. Ron or Block A were <laughs> if someone hadn't forwarded me this video, right? Being a teacher. Um, but here's the, thing about, here's the thing about YouTube and about the, the videos. Um, about 30% of all videos uploaded to YouTube, okay? About 30% um, get fewer than 100 views. So someone uploads a video, fewer than 100 views, three out of 10 times. Um, a little over 50%, okay? So take that 30, add another 20 or so percent, gets fewer than 500 views. So the majority of videos uploaded to YouTube, it's, it, it's fascinating, right? Because if you use it, if you use the interface and you upload, you see everything that's all over your front screen is, you know, 100 million views and 75 million views. And, but the majority of videos that are uploaded to YouTube receive fewer than 500 views. It's only 10%, only 10% of videos uploaded to YouTube receive more than 5,000, okay? Which in YouTube numbers doesn't sound like very many. But nine out of 10 videos uploaded to YouTube get fewer than 5,000 views. And, and three-tenths of 1%, okay? About one out of every 300 videos uploaded to YouTube gets one million views, okay? One million views. Um, if a video using uh, YouTube slash Google, who owns YouTube, using their advertising matrix, the funds that you receive for, for views, um, if, you get, if, if a video gets one million views and it's just user uploaded and, and that you don't have a separate deal with, with Google and YouTube, um, you would, for one million views, you would roughly earn about $65 of, of advertising income, okay? They're doing all right, Google is on this deal. But you may or may not know, okay? Now, by the way, it's YouTube is actually, YouTube killed MTV, right? Um, there are, there are many, many videos now that have over a billion views on YouTube, one billion times they've been viewed. The overwhelming majority of them are music videos, okay? And I'm sad to say that we live in a world where the most video, most viewed video on YouTube is Gangnam Style. <laughs> that is the world we live in. If that's not an argument for the redemption that we need, I don't know what is. Okay? 
But the video that's considered the first true, like, full viral video, and for many years, even with the music videos and their influence on YouTube, for many years, this video was the most viewed video on YouTube. Still today, it's considered to be the, the, the uh, top viewed video on YouTube that was user uploaded, like it wasn't uploaded by a record company, a production company, is this. Maybe you've seen it, okay? There it is, okay? Over 800 million views of Charlie Bit Me, okay? Um, if, and I don't know this for sure, this is all private information, but if, over, with over 800 million views, if um, they used Google's typical pay for uh, views platform, $54,000 for, uh, for Charlie biting his, his brother's finger. So good, good for them, good for them. It was actually, it was actually filmed as like a, just a hello video for the, the boy's godfather who lived in the States, the U.S., and I had not seen it until this week. So there you go. Um, but, I, but I also know there's one more question that we have to answer about this that many of you who've been around here for a while, I'm certain are asking. And it's, where does the LCC lip dub video fit? <laughs> okay? I'm sorry. For those who haven't been around long enough, I apologize. This is a little bit of an inside joke. It's not a joke. I mean, it's very serious. Um, but... but <laughs> But uh, the LCC lip dub video uploaded about three years ago, okay, are you ready? We're a top 10 percenter. Woo, yeah, that's right, that's right. 6,400 views, okay, 6,400 views, which we have to give congratulations to Avon High School, who beat us, and actually the Clark Retirement Home. <laughs> their, their lip dub... Their lip dub is fantastic. Um, I encourage you to see it. Um, but they have, they have over a million views, so we, we bow to them. Um, just, you know, friendly bow, not religious bow. But, but I've got this. Abundant Life Church, Bridgepoint, and Community Bible. We still hold the crown over those three. So, so yeah, LCC lip dub, 6,400 views. We're not the kings of, of YouTube, but, but we're, we're on the map. Okay, we're on the map. All right, so, so all, all, all that aside, in all seriousness, we're going to start looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of how is it that the good news about Jesus goes out? How does it spread so that what began with a group of roughly 120 faithful followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, that it spreads out across three continents by the end of the book, okay? it's reached city after city, it's faced persecution, and, and Paul, who's the messenger of Christ, the apostle that's, that, that the end of the book of Acts is focused on, Paul is on his way to Rome, okay, 
which at that point in time was the center of, the, of Western culture, the center of sort of the, the, the universe. How did that happen? And that's going to be our question. And we're going, to, we're going to dwell on that, and we're going to take it slowly for the next few months. And so what I'd like for you to do is, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, Acts is in the New Testament just after the Gospels. This is actually going to chronicle what happened right after the resurrection. So it's fitting that we begin here as we celebrated Christ's life last week and we continue to celebrate that. Where does that lead? Where did it lead them and where does it lead us? And so let's look at Acts chapter 1, the very beginning. And, and Acts chapter 1 begins with an introduction as really any good book ought to. And... and um, and so what we're going to do is we're actually going to do something a little bit different from what we've, we typically do around here. We're going to take this really verse by verse and sort of examine it for what it says. We want to give, the, give it a close reading and simply say, what's it telling us? And then move backwards through it, back through it to say, okay, now if that's what it's telling us, what, is it, what does it mean for us? Here we are nearly 2,000 years later. What is this, what is this telling us? What do, we, what do we gain from this? And so we want to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and it simply says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Several important things here, right? The very first four words say, in the first book, which tells us that Acts is the second book of a two-volume series. Okay? A two-volume series. And then the, the next phrase, o, o excellent, or O Theophilus, tells us that this one is tied, this book of Acts is tied to the book of Luke. Okay? The book of Luke. So the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, is also addressed to this person named Theophilus. Right? Theophilus. And Theophilus is a, it's a nice word. I, I actually know a Theophilus. Um, he's six years old. I'm not sure he can spell his name, but, he, but it is his name. Um, and, and, um, and so this, by addressing it to Theophilus, Luke, Luke tells us something, and that name Theophilus means like loved by God. Okay, loved by God. And so there are all kinds of theories about who this is, but I just want to say this. A, it's not really that important, okay? But B, we're not really sure who Theophilus is, if it was one person, a group of people. But the idea we can, we can carry forward is this, that, that this is written to someone who's loved by God. And by extension, okay, by extension, we ought to be able to read ourselves into this. We ought to be able to see ourselves in this because, quite frankly, we too are loved by God. And then it says, though, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that's an interesting thing, okay? And it's, it's in green for that reason, right? I, I have dealt in the last book, in the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that phrase, began to do, is, is important to us because it tells us something. Because in just a few verses here, Jesus, his physical presence is going to be gone, Okay? He's no longer going to be physically present with his followers. But he's tell, Luke here, the author, is telling Theophilus that Luke was just the beginning of the work of God. Okay? It was just the beginning. And that what you're about to read is a continuation. It's a sequel. It, it, it carries the story forward. And it's the story of Jesus' work. Now that's interesting because the actual title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. Now, but some would say, perhaps more aptly named, this ought to be 
the continuing acts of Jesus himself. Okay? The continuing acts of Jesus himself. Because Luke tells us right on this, in this first line, in this first line, that what you're going to read here is, it's different, but it's a continuation. Okay? It's worth telling you about because there's more to the story, but it's, it's still the work of Jesus. So keep reading. So he says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In these, in these couple verses, we find a couple things. First is that the, the, the reality of the resurrection mattered to them. Luke makes a point to say that, he, that Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs. It mattered, it mattered that Jesus was at one point physically dead. He was gone. And then, through convincing proof, he convinced them that he was alive again. Okay? He was alive again. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians that, that if Jesus is still dead, then all of this is a waste. And we looked at that last week. If the offer of eternal life isn't an offer from someone who has it, then the offer really is no good, right? I can say to you, after the, after the service, we're passing out a million dollars to everyone, and you would rightfully be skeptical because I don't possess it to hand it over to you. And so when someone says, the offer is this, the offer is life, it's eternal life. If that offer comes from someone who doesn't themselves possess it, then you have reason to be skeptical. Now, this also brings Acts immediately into confrontation with our present-day culture, okay? We live in a culture that wants to say, wow, the resurrection is a powerful idea, and it is an idea, but so many want to stop there, that, that coming back to life is, is a great story. But what Luke is saying here in these first few verses is that, no, wait a minute, we're not talking about, we are talking about an idea, but it's not just an idea. We're not, we're, we are talking about a story, but it's not just a story. It's a reality that was proven to the people that, that carried that message out to all the world. And so this matters to them. And it goes on to say that, that following these, this, his resurrection, these proofs, he appeared to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an absolutely critical idea. The kingdom of God is what Jesus began to do. The good news of the gospel is this, that we are not bound by the rules of this world. We're not bound by the sin and the death that, that, that rule this world. We talked about this last week if you were here for Resurrection Sunday. Death and sin do not reign. There is another reality, and it's a reality where Jesus is king. And the rules of that kingdom are established by the God who is the creator and the maker and has an intention for you. And one day, his reign will be restored. And the way things ought to be is the way things will be. And that's the kingdom of God. Now, the, you can't get around you can't get around the Gospels without coming face-to-face -face with the kingdom of God. It's all over the place, okay? Now, if you just search the kingdom of God in the New Testament, you'll find that 
that the first Christians here in the book of Acts, they don't use the phrase kingdom of God as much as they did in the Gospels. In the book of Luke, it's over 30 times that, that Jesus is, is quoted or one of his followers is quoted as talking about the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, it's only six times. It's only six times. But don't let that, don't let that, that diminish the importance of the notion. Luke sets it here at the beginning to say that the work of Jesus, the work of Jesus, yes, is about, is about you and it's about your soul but it's also about something bigger that you are a part of, that you enter into by faith. And it's, the, it's, it's what we call the kingdom of God. And so we're going to see over these next few months as we look through the book of Acts, we're going to see how these, these earliest followers of Christ who lived post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus, these early followers, how they lived that out. We're going to see it described to us. But let's keep looking at verse 4. And while staying with them, okay? So he's talking about the kingdom of God and says, and while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus says this, Here's, this is, and this is where we're going to, we're going to camp on this this morning for a little while. But this is where Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. He doesn't say, first thing, go out and charge the gates of hell. The first thing he says is stay here. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait. Okay? And it brings up an interesting question for me. And the question has to do with this idea of, of what comes after Resurrection Sunday? What comes next? What is... What is normative in life when we've experienced the resurrection of life of Jesus? When we've come into contact with all that, that Jesus says that he is, when, we've, when we've, we've experienced the reality of the living Lord, what comes next? And in a fascinating way, in a fascinating way, the first thing Jesus tells his followers is hold tight, wait. More is coming, but wait. And he tells them there's more coming. He, he reiterates the prophecy that he'd given them throughout his ministry, but, but in, in, uh, in the upper room, he, he promises that I'm going to send a helper. It's recorded in John 14. I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send one to you. And, and he goes on to say that, that in John 14, that the things, when the Holy Spirit comes, that's a blessing. It's a blessing that I leave because if I stay, the Holy Spirit doesn't come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, then you will do the things that you've seen in me. Okay? We're going to start to get a picture of what it, how, it, how the, the message of Jesus Christ went viral, right? But it begins in one spot. It begins in Jerusalem. And he says at that point, at the very end, that verse 5 again, John, John the Baptist, he baptized you with water. And that baptism was an immersion. It was a, it was a, it was a surrounding with the water. The picture was that you were covered in this. And he says, and in a few days, you're going to be covered with the Spirit. The Spirit is going to cover you. You will use the same word. You will be baptized with this Holy Spirit. He goes on, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, observant reader, there's a difference here, right? What was it that Jesus was teaching about? The kingdom of God. But what did they ask about? The kingdom of Israel. Okay? Now, I don't want to be, I don't want to be glib with this, right? The kingdom of Israel... This was a big deal. It was, it was the nation of Israel that God had chosen to reveal himself through. The work of God had, had begun with the nation of Israel with the intent of moving out to all the world. But, but things were beginning to change. Okay? Things were beginning to change. And the, these disciples, they didn't quite get the right question. They were still concerned with a different kingdom. Okay? Jesus says the kingdom of God, and he means something by it. It's something expansive. It's something that begins in Jerusalem, but as we'll see, goes out from there. And they were very, very concerned with the kingdom of Israel, with their kingdom. Now, that had, it had religious implication. Okay? There was religious implication, but it also had political implication. What they were asking was, when are you going to make Israel great again? When are you going to do that, God? Is it now, Jesus? Is now the time? Okay. When are you going to restore our prominent place where we don't have to take orders from others, where we are free to do what we want to do, where we reign ourselves. And Jesus says in verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know. Times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. In Jesus' direct but gentle way, he says, look, you've asked the wrong question. You've asked the wrong question. That question isn't for you to know. What, now, God's work with Israel is not finished, okay? It's not finished. There is a time coming where Jerusalem will be front and center again. But Jesus says that that's not the question you should be concerning yourself with. It's a question that's unknowable to you anyway. And it's not the question that's at the center of what I'm doing in the world, okay? So when are you going to restore the, nation, or the, the, the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to, to make... Bring back the good old days. When are you going to make things the way that we think they ought to be? In some ways, they're saying, Jesus, when are you going to, to do the thing that we want you to do? You see, they wanted Jesus to do their work, right? I've got something that I want. I want Israel to be, to be front and center. I want Israel to, be, to reign itself. I want Israel to be in charge, to be in control, that's what they were asking. And he says, it's not the right question. It's not the right question. And so one of the first things we pick up here is just this idea that we've got to concern ourselves with building the right kingdom. Okay? We as followers of Christ, we must concern ourselves with building the right kingdom. My kingdom, my kingdom is not important enough to give up my life for. Okay? In the same way that, that they're asking, hey, we've got this idea, Jesus. We want you to, to make this thing happen. And Jesus says, that's not the right kingdom. It's the same answer today when we say, 
God, I've got this plan. When are you going to make my plan come to fruition? God, and sometimes it's even spiritualized, right? We do this in the church. We do this in our, in our relationships with those who don't know Christ. I've got a plan, and the plan is, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to pull this lever, and, and God, now I've been praying, when are you going to make the pulling of the lever result in the, in the, the answer that I want, in, in the, the consequence or the result of my actions? When are they going to lead to the thing that I want? When, when am I going to get what I deserve for my work? When, are you, when am I going to gonna, gonna get everything that you say ought to be true for me? But you see, even if we spiritualize it, even when it's spiritualized, even when it's put in the context of church or spiritual work, we're still saying, God, when are you going to do my work? When are you going to bless my kingdom? And Jesus, Jesus is very quick to say, you can't be about that quest. You can't, that can't be the center of what we do. And he gives a big but in verse 8. Look at verse 8. But, okay, in contrast to that, don't worry about your kingdom, but instead you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice the scope of what Jesus gives them. What did they say? When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, beginning with the end in mind, says, yeah, this thing is much bigger than that. This is going to go out to all the world, the ends of the earth. It's Israel itself is far too small for God's plan. His plan goes out to all the nations, all the ends of the earth. Now it begins in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the launching point for this. He had said, go back to Jerusalem and wait. But that's the beginning. That's the beginning of the move. But notice three, three pieces here. This is fascinating. This, these three things, if, if you forget everything else this morning, go back and listen to it online. I'm kidding. If you forget everything else this morning, remember this. Okay, remember this. Acts Chapter 1, verse 8, often quoted, if you've been around the church at all, you've probably heard this voice. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8, introduces us to three important things that are going to be on every page of the book of Acts. It's the mission that Jesus gives his followers, but it's, it's, it's put together in sort of like three, what I'll call characters. If we say, who are the main characters of the book of Acts? It says this, but you will receive power. Who's the you, right? At that point, it's the followers of Christ. It comes to be known as the church. Those who, those who had already accepted the life of Christ as their own, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, God in the Spirit is going to show up, and we're going to talk about it next week as we take the text one step at a time. But he says, you no longer, no longer do you come to me in, a, in the temple, but I'm going to send my spirit out to you. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts. And so the first character we find here is the church. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, is going to move in these people. And everything that we see happening in the book of Acts is either spirit-led or it's spirit-denying. 
And you can only guess which side of those two wins. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You see, they were tasked with a purpose and the purpose was to testify, to witness, to tell the truth about, to proclaim what Jesus had done. My witnesses. We're not building any other kingdom except his. This is the mission. The church carries the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. We carry the good news that God has a kingdom and his kingdom is the way things ought to be. But it's not at present, but he's made a way for us to experience it nonetheless through his son. And guess what? Good news. A time is coming where it will be restored. The kingdom of God will be everything that he promises it to be. This is the book of Acts in one phrase. Okay? Three characters, the church, you and I, today, the church, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel itself, the good news, is a character in the book of Acts. We're going to find time after time after time where they're confronted with, why are you doing this? It's coming at great personal cost. Why do you continue to preach about Jesus and the resurrection? And they say, we can't help ourselves. The gospel is central to what we're going to see in the book of Acts. It's central to our mission. And so let's wrap this up. And when, verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The the word for this is the ascension. As Jesus had, had descended, his incarnation, he had died, his crucifixion, his resurrection. The next piece of this is his ascension. He he floats up on a cloud out of their sight. Okay? And keep reading because he tells us, and while they were gazing into heaven, more like gawking, right? As they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Why? We saw two men in robes last week at the resurrection. And I just have a question. I'm, ser- I mean, I'm serious about this. I don't, I'm not sure that angels get sarcasm, Okay. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that that sarcasm plays well in the angelic realm. Because here's the thing. They ask really silly questions. Angels ask silly questions. Last week it was, why are you looking in a tomb for someone that you thought was dead? Okay? But surprise, he's alive. Good news. This week it's, why are you looking up in the sky? And I want to go, because Jesus just floated out of my sight up there. Right? (laughs) This is a silly question, okay? Now, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but, but I'm stunned by it, right? Like, maybe it's this. No, I'm not going to say it. Go there. Never mind. Um, maybe, maybe if an angel comes to you, okay, if, maybe if an angel comes to you, you won't recognize them by whether or not they tell you to go dig up the sacred skulls, scrolls that are hidden out in the field somewhere. Maybe you'll recognize by telling them a sarcastic joke and see if they get it, okay? If they don't, they don't, you might have a real angel on your hands, okay? All right. But, but what they tell them is this, look, you're looking up, but here, get this right, get this right. Where you're looking, Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back, and you see, this is the fulfillment of the kingdom. This is the fulfillment of the kingdom. A time is coming, you've seen Jesus leave, but he will return. He will return. They don't say much else about it here, so we're not going to say much else about it. But get this right, get this right a piece, a part, an essential part of the gospel good news message of Jesus 
is that his story isn't finished. We talked about it last week. We'll say it again. And we're gonna say it over and over and over again because it's so true. And it impacts every moment of every day of our lives. Jesus is alive. He's at work. And he's coming back. He's coming back in the same way he left. This is what we take this seriously. A time is coming. So you see what's happening here for us. You see what's happening? We're starting to get this picture of waiting. What happens after the resurrection? Mostly it's kind of like we have a nice moment with the ascension, but it's mostly like go to Jerusalem and wait. And you know what? He tells us today, when we, when we ask questions, God, when are you going to make this right? When are you going to restore all the things that ought to be right? All the things that are broken. When is it going to happen? Is it now? Is it now that you're going to do it? Is it now? And the answer is still, it's not for you to know. But it is for you to wait. It's for you to wait. So look at what they do, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem They were obedient to what Jesus had told them to do, right? They didn't go out and force the issue. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey walk, a journey away. That's shorthand for very close. And when they had entered, they went up to the when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. That whole list. I believe, is to tell you that Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus, is not there. Okay, Read the rest of chapter 1, and it, it gives you more of his story. But you've got 11 of the apostles that are there, okay? the original apostles. And then look at what it says. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You see, what they did, what they did, they obeyed, and they waited patiently. They waited patiently. God, when are you going to do the thing that you say you're going to do? You say you don't like something, God. You say that you don't like the sin in this world. You say that you don't like the injustice. You say that you don't like the greed and the idolatry. You say you don't like these things. When are you going to do something about it? And he says, oh, I am. But you're really worried about the time. You're asking this, this when question. And, and my directives to you are different. It's not for you to know when. It's for you to obey. And you see, I would say this, the manner in which we wait really matters. The manner in which we wait really matters. This is why why patience is so virtuous. This is why, why patience is a real thing. Generation after generation after generation now, for centuries, We've been asking the same question, right? Jesus, is it now? Is it now you're going to make it all right? This has got to be it, right? Haven't you had enough? Genocide and war. Disease and famine. It's got to be it, right? And he says, it's not for you to know, but it is for you to believe. It will come to an end. It will happen. In the meantime, you're to take a posture. And the posture is not one of retreat from that world. The posture is not one of hiding from it. It's not one of even necessarily confrontation. 
he says to wait in a particular way. Look at Luke in, his, in the first volume, in the Gospel of Luke. He actually has a few verses to sum up how they were living in this ascension reality. And he says, while he blessed them, he being Jesus, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. We just saw that in Acts as well. But look at this, verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. You see what they did? In Acts, they were unified. They prayed with one another. In Luke, they worshiped. They were constantly, for them, the temple was church. They were together in praise. How do we, how do we wait for the big thing? And by the way, for them, the big thing is coming. Like the next page, there's this really big thing that God does in introducing the Spirit. And we'll see that next week. Don't miss it. But I have to be honest with you. Most of life is about next week. Right? There are big things, big moments in life. They happen. They, it occurs. There are these, these mile markers we put down and we say, that was the time. And I remember God moving in that moment. And they're, they're big in size, but not necessarily in scope, right? Most of life is spent between the big moments. The overwhelming majority of our life is spent in the in-between, in the waiting. Oh God, I've seen you do this. I know that you can. And you tell me that you will. But it's not this moment, this second. And one of the traps that we fall into is trying to manufacture this moment. Trying to prompt God to make this moment the moment. We try to get him to agree to do our work rather than waiting and listening and gathering with other followers and praying, communicating to him, worshiping. We start to get more frantic. We say, that lever didn't work. I asked God to do that thing and it didn't happen. I, must, I need to try a different lever. I need to try a different approach to get God to do what I want him to do. And his answer ought to come, we ought to hear this, it comes back to us as this, hold tight. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. In the grand scheme of history, for God, it's just a moment. I realize for, for you and I, it seems like it's taking forever. But he's gonna move. It's going to happen. And see, waiting the right way, I'm going to wrap up with this. Waiting the right way prepares us for the big mission. You see, how will we know God's voice when he, when he tells us, now's the time. Here's where you move. This is where I'm at work. And it, I, I believe, and I believe that what we're finding here in the book of Acts is when we've waited on him, we've connected in community, we're unified around his message. We're in communication through prayer. We worship him. 
These are the practices of the Christians who are waiting for the big moment. Can I say this, life community? Can we be those people? That's what we're going to ask in this book of Acts. Okay? It may seem like a fool's errand to say we're going to spend more than four months on this one series. But to, to prime us for this and to prep us for this, we've got to take on the same attitude that they had about the movement and the work of God. We cannot give in to impatience. We cannot give in to the impulsive responses. We've got to be people who commit to the God who gives the mission not commit to the mission that we then want to give over to God. Okay? Will you come with us? All right. Let's pray.